Welcome to the Confident Money Podcast, where we talk money, finances, and accounting for real people without all the technical jargon, patronizing, and gatekeeping. I'm your host, Caitlin Magnuson, and I'm going to be your new finance bestie. Welcome back to the Confident Money Podcast. I'm your host, Caitlin Magnuson, and this is episode five with our guest, Kyle Seagraves. Kyle is a certified mortgage advisor, licensed loan originator, and the owner of Win the House You Love, a YouTube channel with over 100,000 subscribers. Kyle, I feel like you don't even need to be welcomed back at this point. You're just existing as a part of the show. Um, So thank you for being here. And I know today, we were going to talk about the you know strategy around buying and selling a house, and we're also going to touch on some self-employed tips because I know a lot of our listeners are self-employed or are looking to be self-employed in the future. So welcome back. Let's kick it off. Yeah, I feel like if I wasn't welcome at this point, we probably wouldn't have this many episodes. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I when people are buying a house, like they're spending more money than they ever have before, and of course, it's going to that's going to trigger that thing in our brain. That's like, um, what are all of the risks? And I need to make sure I have answers to all these things Mm -hmm. before I move forward with this. Otherwise that very primal part of us is going to like back out, go back to the thing that we know. Um, and so I think that's kind of our goal for this episode is just really touch on what are some of those things that get triggered in us that make us want to say, actually, I want to go back to the thing that felt more safe and secure because I am more familiar with it. When we get into the unknowns, we start to say, uh, get me out of here as quickly as possible. Um, Yes. And I know we touched on a couple of those things, like the 30 year versus the 15 year, um, along with uh, also some of the renting um, versus buying questions. The duration that you're going to be staying somewhere. I mean, that kind of went with the renting versus the buying, but I know that the big one had been the, you know, opportunity cost of, okay, so you've bought, but maybe the market has fluctuated. Hmm. You know, what, yeah. what does that look like when the market fluctuates? We've seen an appreciating market for quite some time now. And so if you buy in, there's a very good chance you're going to be selling for higher than you've purchased. But with you know yeah. the market changing, what does that look like if you buy in and you need to sell two years from now, but your home's actually valued at less? Yes, that is a huge concern, especially with a market that we're in now where we're going from seller's market, where sellers have the control, prices are higher into what looks like more of a buyer's market now where buyers have control over terms um, and negotiating power and usually prices tend to uh, flatten out a little bit and potentially decline. Um, First, I think it's really helpful to remember why do I want to buy a home in the first place? For most people, they're buying a home because they want to enjoy where they live. They want to have a nice place to either work or to sleep or uh, to cook meals and have friends over, uh, not to squeeze the most profit out. And I I don't believe that every single thing we do in life has to be squeezing every single dime out of all of our decisions. And so home buying can be something that you spend money on uh, or lose money on and it still be fine because you enjoyed it because that's kind of what life is about is actually enjoying (laughs) things, right? (laughs) And not just, uh, you know, being a machine for money. (laughs) So it's okay if everything we do doesn't ultimately uh, bring create the most profit for us. So if you are looking at a house, like in a market like this, and let's say we bought a home for $400,000. And what happens if we see prices decrease over the next few years? Well, a really good thing to do is look at what's happened historically. When there's been price declines historically, uh, the past few declines that we've had have only lasted three years. Meaning that if you bought a home 
and waited three years before you sold it, you would have broke even. So that's not a terribly long time to wait in home. Even in the biggest decline when we had the 2008 housing crisis, that was a decline of six years before it recovered back to the same period. So if you bought a home for $400,000 at the height of uh, home prices, uh, right before the housing crash, let's say we bought it for 400,000. Mm -hmm. If you waited six years in that home and then sold it, you would have been able to sell it for $400,000. So you didn't lose any money unless you sold at the decline. Um, now, if you do sell a home uh, within a short period of time, this is where home buying uh, does have like a lack of flexibility to it compared to renting. Because with renting, I can tell my landlord and say, hey, I'm actually going to be leaving in 30 days. Best of luck. <laughs> uh, or 60 days or whatever they want from you um, before you leave. Right. And then you go somewhere else. With the buying, you do have to put it on the market and sell it or rent it. Um, and if you are selling within a short period of time, you do run the risk of uh, either breaking even or actually having to bring money to the closing table to sell the home. And this would happen if you, uh, let's say we bought the home for $400,000 and in two years we wanna sell it. And maybe we can only sell the home for, uh, let's say $405,000. So it went up in value a little bit. But when you close on a home, you also pay closing costs. Most of the time people pay 6% for both their realtor and the buyer's realtor mm -hmm. combined. So 3% for each. And then there might be some property taxes or some other closing costs like title or transfer taxes when you sell the home. And so in those instances, it's possible that if you need to sell home within a short period of time, that you could have to bring money to the closing table. That risk becomes less and less as you stay in the home for longer. And like we talked about on a previous episode, that's why it's usually beneficial to buy a home only if you know you're going to stay in there for three plus five plus years because you don't run that risk anymore of uh, the appreciation not covering the cost to sell. Yeah. I think that that's something that can be really scary for people. I know that's something that I bought right after, you know, the 2008 collapse, we'll say. And mm -hmm. it was really, there was a lot going on at the time where, you know, people were selling or people were underwater and, you know, we'll, we'll talk about this more in the next episode, but I also, I want people to understand that, A, if you're going into this, understanding that, yes, you know, it's it's a purchase, it's an investment, there is risk associated, right? Just like with buying a car or doing anything else, it's just a little bit larger. And, but it can also be really, I feel like very secure if you know that you're able to stay somewhere or maybe instead of like, let's say, given that example, and I know that this has happened a lot, especially with the prior, you know, housing market issues that had occurred, People that were, you know, underwater on their homes, meaning they owed more than it was worth, or maybe even they didn't owe, they were able to sell for more, but with closing costs, with everything that goes into that, they were going to need to bring cash to closing, which they may not have because mm. they may have been counting on that sale and the equity that they had built and the appreciation that was there to provide them with the profit that they needed. So just because I know a lot of people here can think worst case scenario, or like you said, kind of want to know all the answers. You know, one of the options that I have been made aware of is looking at, you know, renting your home or what can you mm -hmm. do if you had to leave and it was short and maybe even, and I know that this has happened, maybe even you can't rent your house for what your mortgage payment is. Maybe you're a couple hundred dollars a month shy but you're looking again at the financial cost of 
is having to bring a couple hundred dollars to the table to you know keep this mortgage here and to keep this yeah. home until values appreciate again or the market has a chance to recover. So I just didn't know if you had any other thoughts on you know options that people have when they are looking at the worst case scenario. Not to dwell there, but just to yeah. provide thoughts. Yeah, renting is probably the best solution in that instance. If you're like, I am, I want to sell, but selling is going to cost me money. Um, you could also look at doing a for sale by owner. Um, there's tons of YouTube videos and solutions to that if you need help doing that, because that could save you some money at the closing table. But if you're at that point where you're like, I need to sell, but I might have to bring money to the closing table because the value is decreased or the costs for to close are higher than uh, you know what I made on the home, um, then I think renting is really the best option, especially like you mentioned, even if even if you collect less in rent than the mortgage payment it likely is probably a better option than pay, having to pay money to sell the home. Um, so options like that, but a lot of it too, a lot of this risk management goes back to when we bought in the first place. Um, kind of going back to those conversations about like the 30 year versus the 15. This is why the 30 year is better because mm -hmm. in those instances, I'd rather have that lower mortgage payment than the 15 year because I'm legal, like I'm obligated to the, that higher payment on a 15 year. So not only that, but I also want to make sure that when I buy a home, I'm not maxing out as much as I possibly can. Um, you know, I don't want to spend 45% just because a lender will approve me to, up to that. I don't want to spend 45% of my gross income on a home because things can and will happen. Crazy things like a global pandemic <laughs> might happen. And I don't want to be stuck with a payment that feels like it is consuming right. most of my income, especially if things start to get tight economically. Absolutely. I could not agree more. And I think that whenever possible, my parents lived this way and like bless them because I bought a house three quarters of a mile down the road and it was not possible. Um, but I grew up being told that you should be able to pay for everything on one spouse's income if you were part of a married or, you know, partnered couple. And I think that that was a great concept especially for when they were buying, but they bought a house that was twice the size of mine, three quarters of a mile away, 12 years before I bought my house. And they paid a thousand dollars less. And I always, that was a whole lot of unpacking around my own buying power. But when I was looking to purchase, you know, the house that I had bought before, for me, it was looking at, okay, what happens if I lose my job and I have unemployment? Unemployment doesn't cover a lot. But most likely, you know, kind of running through the different scenarios of what's likely. And we do this with business owners a lot where, okay, let's, let's sit and think about this for a second. When you're looking at the bills and what, what debt you're comfortable bringing on, what is the likelihood if you lost three of your big clients tomorrow or a large chunk mm -hmm. of your income, what does that look like? What is the timeline to replace that income? How easily can yeah. you pivot what are your options in the market that you're in? And I think factoring those in with also ideally not hitting that 45%, or I think you said before, what, 56.99% for, <laughs> for some options, yeah. which we don't want. That's yeah. really stressful no. yes. or could be really stressful. I think that looking at your earning potential and your sort of recovery potential is important as well, especially when you're considering an emergency fund or those expenses that pop up, like you'd said before. Mm -hmm. having to replace a roof or things that homeowners insurance doesn't cover or making sure that your homeowners insurance deductible is realistic for your financial situation. Yeah. Are you putting you know, a $5,000 deductible when you don't have $5,000 earmarked in savings that could go towards that? Like there are things to be looking at. And maybe that means 
if you have more volatile income or you have fewer income sources that you save up a larger emergency fund before you yeah. look to buy a house. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think you're spot on with the emergency fund is like, I know that gets talked about a lot in personal finance and I feel like people kind of gloss over it a little bit and it's kind of really distressing to see sometimes when like I, I have done loans for a lot of people who they will buy a home, but the, the amount that they spend on down payment closing costs clear out their bank account. Mm-hmm. Like they don't have money left over after that. Like they'll literally depend on the next paycheck to come in to fill their bank account with just something other than like 12 bucks. Right. Uh, and so like, and I usually tell them like this, maybe it'd be helpful to have some savings before you do this. Ultimately, it's not my decision. You're the mm-hmm. one buying the house. You are a grown adult. You can make these decisions, but I do want to let you know, like this is, this is risky. Like, and I don't want you to have to depend on a credit card or other lines of credit to cover things like the AC going out or even just the general cost of moving tends to be a lot more than people expect. Hey, if you're enjoying the show, make sure you subscribe and join our community at confidentmoneypodcast.com where we share resources and all of the money happenings. Plus you can send feedback and suggestions for what you'd like to see covered in future episodes. That's confidentmoneypodcast.com. Okay, back to the show. Um, I was curious, what, what do you feel like is a good, like, could you explain the emergency, like how would somebody set up an emergency fund and how they figure out like how much money they actually need before they that, God, that is, that is the question. That's like, what kind of loan do you want to get? Right. Um, there, there are so many variables that factor in, but I feel really strongly that as a bare bones rule of thumb, everyone should strive for three months of expenses in an emergency fund. So let's say you make $6,000 a month as a household and your expenses are $3,500. You'd want to have three months of those expenses, which is what, I think $10,500. It's not invested. It's not, you know, volatile. This is stable. And the reason Mm -hmm. I err kind of on the low side for liquid cash savings, because frankly, there's an opportunity cost to parking that money in a savings account, even to parking that money in a high yield savings account. Part of the downfall of keeping that money safe is understanding that it's also not necessarily going to keep up with inflation. It's most likely not at all going to keep up with inflation. So that money becomes worth less every year, which is a little bit depressing, but you need it to be stable. You need it to be there. Now, the reason that I feel comfortable starting at that three month mark is because for most people, let's say that, you know, that household in that example that makes $6,000, someone in that household gets laid off. Okay. So we're going to say the income is half. So your income is $3,000. Your expenses are $3,500. So you're only negative $500 a month at that point. That emergency Mm -hmm. fund is going to cover you for almost two years, given that example. And that's not even factoring in unemployment. However, for most of us, if you take your base expenses, a lot of us have things that we could cut if push came to shove, right? So taking your regular expenses now and planning for that means that like I could go cut probably $250 easily out of just mm-hmm. random things that I spend or subscriptions yeah. that I have that I don't have to have if you know I'm really tight financially. Now, there are people that may have, and I don't know my thoughts on this. I don't have children. I have a separate emergency fund for my animals. Mm-hmm. for 
vet appointments for ACL tears, which we just experienced and get to pay for again. Um, That is separate from that. I have, you know, this, this amount that I have for my emergency fund is just for replacing my income. It's not to supplement, you know, this is not a travel fund. This is not anything else. And for me, three months feels great because three months really could be six to 12 or more when I think appropriately spread out or allocated. Now there are some people, maybe you're the only source of income in your family. Maybe you don't have a partner. Maybe you have children and you don't have a partner. That may look like a higher amount for you, right? Because you have higher risk to your income. And especially if you only have one income source, you know, for people that have day jobs, that sounds great. And for a lot of people, it feels really stable. Personally, I disagree because I've never, we're going to knock on wood, had all of my business income drop out for me overnight. I have been laid off before and lost that entire source of income. And so again, depending on your personal risk tolerance and your financial situation, I think three months of expenses is a a great place to start. I wouldn't go higher than that. I would invest any extra for myself personally above and beyond that. But for some people, maybe as much as six months worth of income could make Mm. sense. Yeah. That's absolutely what I recommend too, is like three months is the fear part of my brain is like, that's not enough. I need two years worth, but three months is like, you, you have a lot of, that's three years of zero income. You now have a fund that is replacing, it's going to pay for all your expenses. So in that, in that world, you're kind of like, oh, I I guess I could take the first month as a break. And then I have two months to find some other way to just pay for my expenses. Right. Probably, probably be able to figure that out pretty quickly. And so what that looks like when you're buying a house and reducing some of those, the risk of things that could happen includes when you're looking at how much the home is going to cost, making sure that after you pay the cash to close them out, which is your down payment plus your closing costs, after I pay the cash to close, at minimum, I have three months worth of expenses left over uh, set aside just as an emergency fund, not as my moving costs, not as furniture, not as like the ping pong table I want to put in the basement. Right, all the fun things. Uh, Yeah. Just to say this is worst case scenario sits here. Absolutely. And I think that that was, I'm not going to call it a mistake, but I am going to call it a major stressor when I bought my first house versus the situation and the lack of anxiety when I bought my second house. And I had that fully funded emergency, you know, savings account. And it was Buying a house can be stressful depending on who you are and how you operate. That took one of the really big stressors out of the picture for me and allowed us to weather unexpected expenses in the first couple of years and not have to panic about them or wonder Mm. how we're going to pay for them or dip into other savings or retirement or things that, you know, we're ideally not touching. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to move into the self-employed side of this because I know a lot of people are really curious and... I'm always interested when we're chatting about this and, you know, a lot of people have been buying over the last few years, at least a lot of our clients have been. And so when it comes to being a self-employed person, qualifying for a mortgage, one of my biggest tips, and I think you share this, Kyle, is if you have a W-2, a day job, right? Some of your income's coming from that. A lot of us, Mm -hmm. I think that started businesses, we're working W-2 jobs for quite a while while we're getting our businesses going. My biggest tip and this feels like such a cop-out, is to keep that W-2, especially if your business is not terribly established, until you qualify and can close on a house because it'll make the process so much easier. Yeah. For some reason, and and I agree with you, like most people have never had their self-employed 
business, like all their income just drop out. But plenty of people have been laid off from a job and their income disappears like that. So it's very confusing how in the mortgage world, W-2 income is seen as extremely stable. Underwriters love it. There's a few, very few pieces of documentation that they need to prove that income and everyone's comfortable with it being stable. On the other side, self-employment income is not seen as stable and they want a longer term history of seeing an income at a very stable level to be able to use it. Um, so the minimum there is two years. It's like just two years of being self-employed before they even will entertain uh, you getting a mortgage. So if you do have a W-2 job and you're saying, I am eventually wanting to go full-time into my business. If you're at that point, it's so much easier to buy a house with your W-2 job than to switch becoming self-employed. Often what I see happens is people will jump into their new business full-time because they're in that point where they're like, financially, they're able to do that. And that's fantastic. But then they say, I want to also buy a house. Okay. Well, the minimum to buy a house is two years of being in business self-employed. The only way around that is if you have prior work history. So the way this would work is let's say you're a graphic designer and you earn a W-2 income. So you've been doing that for a couple of years. Great. Then all of a sudden you switch over into uh, 1099 work and now you're a freelance graphic designer. You have your own business and you're making maybe a similar amount or maybe more income and you have done that for one year minimum. You can then get past the two year mark because you were a graphic designer before and now you're still a graphic designer. You just went from W-2 to 1099. However, if you completely shift, let's say you're a graphic designer, W-2, and then you all of a sudden you start a lawn care business and you've been doing that for a year, you can't use that income because an underwriter is going to look at that and you've been, you've been in business for one year. Right. How do we know that that is stable? And to an underwriter and to lenders, they view the company as being more stable than the individual earning the money. So that's why with a W-2, they kind of imagine... They almost like assume that the business you work for is extremely stable when most people kind of know that's usually not true. <laughs> yes. uh, but when you start your own business, they're like, oh, this is a new business. We don't know if this is going to make money over you know, a long period of time. And the underwriter's job is to make sure that the income they approve you with now has a likelihood of continuing mm -hmm. in the future. Because if you're getting a 30-year mortgage, they're not anticipating what your job is going to be in 30 years. Uh, but what they like to see is will your income likely continue for the next three years is what mortgage underwriters are usually looking for. It's a continuance of three years. So a business that only started for one year, like statistically, it's not going to continue for the next three years. So they need a two year minimum self-employed history. So once you have the history requirement, then figuring out what income they're going to be using is a completely different scenario because your first year, Let's say your business only made 30,000 and then the next year, let's say your business made 150,000. Well, a lot of people are like, great, I've, I've been making a, a ton of money. We mm -hmm. can now use you know, 10 or $11,000 per month as what I can qualify on a home for. And if you're in that spot, even from like a risk management perspective, I would say probably not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like your business grew a lot and like maybe we don't all of a sudden bring up our expenses the same amount. Um, you know, there's some risk management in there as a being self-employed of like, yeah, the business grew that one year, but we don't know that's going to continue. And underwriters look at it the same way. You had a, a second really good year, but is that going to continue? So far, there hasn't been a lot of stability. We went 30 to 150 and, you know, in a business owner's head, they're like, and next year is going to be 300. Right. <laughs> in an underwriter's head, they're like, and next year is going to be 30. 
so underwriters are more pessimistic. Business owners tend to be a little more optimistic. So what ends up happening in those situations is the underwriter usually is not going to just use the 150 a year income. They're either going to pull an average of the two, and that's a good rule of thumb for self-employed people is to look at past two years of income as an average. Likely what's going to happen in this situation is the underwriter is going to default more towards a lower income than the average because that first year was so much lower than the second year. So then often what they'll do is they'll ask for a supplemental year-to-date profit and loss to see, okay, what is the income now trending? We saw first year tax return, second year tax return. How is income looking now? Is it, is it higher? Maybe we can default to an average. Is it lower? Maybe we're going to have to pull back to a lower income. Um, and unfortunately, there's not super solid, uh, like I can't just give you a, a really basic rule to use uh, because the income calculations are so much more complex than that and often can be up to the underwriter's discretion on what they feel is going to be an acceptable income to use. Because if we think about the underwriter, when they're looking at your income, underwriters actually aren't really just thinking like, do I want to give John an approval or not? That's how we think they think. Like they're just sitting there want to give me a thumbs up or thumbs down. In reality, they're going to take your loan and they're going to sell it on the secondary market. That's what happens for 80 plus percent of loans. They get sold to institutions like Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac. And they're the ones who make the rules for these loans. And so the underwriter, what they're thinking is when a Fannie Mae auditor comes in here and they look at the loan and they're like, you approved John with $150,000 income, but he made $30,000 last year. Tell me how that makes sense to you. And the underwriter has to sit there and be like, um, it's a great question. <laughs> and like that underwriter can actually be penalized for things like that. So that's the mindset that an underwriter is going through is more of what is what looks stable to somebody completely outside third party who expects, you know, who's going to take on the risk of this loan. Mm-hmm. And so that ultimately is is kind of what you're looking at. Two years is to your average is a good rule of thumb, but it really can change, especially when you have big changes in your income. Absolutely. No. And I, I think that so many of the business owners I know that we work with will see explosive growth. Like you just said, you know, you'll have a $30,000 a year and then a $150,000 a year. And then ideally you're on track for what a $500,000 a year, you know, who knows the next year. Yeah. And that's great, but there's also, there's just not a track history because it could be that you have a $30,000 year, $150,000 a year, it all burns to the ground. You have a $50,000 year, you know, year three. (laughs) And so, yes, your income hasn't necessarily completely dropped out, but you're also not making $150,000 a year. And I think when we look at, I know from the tax side, we're always looking at claiming as many deductions as we can, right? Because anything that you could take to reduce your business income reduces your overall taxable income, which reduces the taxes that you have to pay. Mm-hmm. And no one necessarily wants to pay more in taxes, especially if you you know, can illegally avoid them. And so with that, I know we had chatted and that there are some deductions that can be added back in, right? So you're self-employed. Let's just say that you've been in business for five years, you know, you've had relatively consistent growth or income, or, you know, you're able to see a reliable pattern for someone and they have some deductions they've taken. You had mentioned when we were chatting offline that one of the primary deductions that can be added back in and to count towards your qualifying income is depreciation. I know that for a lot of our clients and a lot of other small businesses, 
depreciation is either non-existent or not a particularly high dollar value item. So I know what you had mentioned was that so many business owners, and I know I've been guilty of this in the past, but you ask someone, you know, hey, Kyle, what's your income? And you say what your business makes in a given month or a given year. Okay, cool, Kyle. But like, what do you put in your pocket? Like what gets moved from your business account to your personal account after expenses? Because I think so many of us are like, oh yeah, I had a $300,000 a year or a $150,000 a year, but maybe you took home half of that. That's what you're actually going to be looking yeah. to qualify. Realtors do this all day long. And I, you know, I imagine this might be helpful even just outside of the mortgage or home buying conversation for people just from a mindset perspective. I know I got really discouraged when I first started in real estate because realtors and loan officers do this all the time is, you know, they're self-employed and they're, I, I made half a million dollars last year or whatever, a million dollars. But then you actually start talking with them and you're like, yeah, but you also spent $800,000 on your team and marketing and all the other costs. So you ultimately only made whatever like yeah and even though it was still a good amount you're going around telling people things that weren't actually true and you compare yourself to that you're comparing what you know comes into your bank account versus their gross to someone's highlight reel yeah to someone's gr- yeah exactly <laughs> right and so it's important to remember when you are applying for a mortgage you are applying for your mortgage not your business and so the underwriter is looking at what is your personal income Another way to think about this is what is your business net income? If you're 100% owner of that business, your personal income is going to be reflective of your business net income, not your business gross income. And so often what I see happens with a lot of self-employed people is they do write off stuff. So let's say they make $150,000 gross in their business and they write off uh, $50,000 in expenses. Now, we joked about this on the previous episode of, you know, a write-off doesn't mean that like that didn't exist. You right. still paid $50,000 in expenses over your business. That was part of what it is required to run your business. So when you're looking at a mortgage, it wouldn't make sense for you personally to say, I'm going to base how much I can afford on $150,000 income. That doesn't make sense because you don't have $150,000 in income. You have 100000 that you can actually use to pay for a home. So underwriters look at the same thing. And so this is where people kind of get tripped up. They're like, well, these are just write-offs. And so... I should be able to add those back. But those are real business expenses. You wouldn't be able to make the 150 without the 50. Right. So it's important to remember that the underwriter understands the same thing. <laughs> They're not going to use your business gross income. They're going to look at the net. Like, what did you actually make? And things can be added back like depreciation, but most people don't have depreciation to add back that, that I've seen. If they do, they normally have a larger, they're more like a C-corp structure right. and they get paid differently than 100% ownership. So it is important to remember that of like your underwriter is going to look at what do you actually make? And if you are 100% owner of your business, that is going to be the net income of your business, not what your gross business income is. I mean, I wish that would be wonderful. Uh, <laughs> that would be great. But also horrible at the same time, right? Because you'd have people probably defaulting left and right on loans mm-hmm. because they don't actually have the cash flow to support it. I know that when we're looking to take deductions for people and we're having the conversation, you know, a new client comes on and we're having the chat of like, what are your big life goals in the next, you know, two to five years? Are you looking to purchase a house, you know, have children, get married, anything that kind of impacts their financial situation? Because part of that is if they're like, yeah, you know, I really want to buy a house in the next year. Okay, cool. Let's look at what that actually looks like. You know, if they know the area that they want to be buying and if they know kind of 
an idea of maybe home price or what they're looking for. We'll actually look at that and be like, okay, great. Either as a real rough estimate, we always encourage, you know, chat with a loan officer to like get your Mm -hmm. personal stuff sorted. But from our side, your business should probably be making this with this as a profit. And that lets them plan accordingly if they do have a year or two to be ramping up. Okay, cool. Maybe I paid $20,000 in like educational and professional trainings that I don't need to do this year or that I could drop for a few years because they're not required. And so I think that again, like with everything that we're looking at here, a little bit of planning and foresight can go such a long ways in helping make the qualifying process, especially as a self-employed individual, so much more streamlined. Yeah. And that brings up a good point. I think for a lot of people, the issues with deductions can come from the like, well, if I knew this was going to be an issue, I wouldn't have bought the video equipment or I wouldn't have mm-hmm. bought the course that I didn't really need, but I wanted and I could afford. Like I wouldn't have done those things if I knew I could buy a house. And if you find yourself in that situation, there are programs that will not look at your business uh, net income. So there are programs called bank statement programs, and they'll actually average uh, either personal or business bank statements. And they'll look at either a 12-month average or a 24-month average to use as your income. So they'll take all the deposits, divide those by 12 or 24 um, to find your income. And then they multiply it times a artificial expense ratio. So this might be 50% for someone like uh, has low cost like a realtor. Mm-hmm. It might be 90%, meaning you can use 90% of those gross deposits as your income. Those ignore all of your deductions that you'd put in. So those can be a helpful route. However, interest rate is a lot higher and the down payment is a lot higher. You're mm-hmm. going to be expecting to be do probably around a 20 to 25% down payment. And the interest rate is usually going to be one to 2% higher, sometimes more depending on your credit score than a traditional loan. So what I've worked with clients on sometimes is getting them in a bank statement program because that's the only thing they could use to qualify for a loan. And then over the next two to three years, they can readjust their tax strategy to then be able to qualify for a conventional loan. So they miss out on some tax savings, but they have better savings on their interest because they can refinance into a lower interest rate loan. Absolutely. No, which makes total sense. I think there's there's so much strategy behind the timing. And you know, do you mm-hmm. have two years or three years where you can do this and have it reflected on your tax returns? Is the home purchase an immediate need that you need to do? Cool. Maybe we do look at bank statement. Maybe we do, you know, it, it comes with, I'm going to say temporary downfalls potentially, right? But also allowing you to do whatever that next step is for yourself. But I think that so much of it is taking a step back for a second because everyone's, you know, oh, I want to pay as little in taxes as possible. I want to, I actually had someone say one time, well, my mom said that my taxable income should be zero because I own a business at the end of the year. Hmm. I was like, well, not just artificially <laughs> zero. And also that's not yeah. going to help like cool. It'll help you a lot with taxes. It's not going to help you when it comes time to qualify for anything. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're not just spending all of our money to try and hit $0 in income because mm-hmm. qualifying for things like a car or a home loan or anything else that you might need or credit card gets a little bit difficult if you don't have any, you know, taxable income yeah. at the end of the year, especially if it's not authentic and you're just buying things to, overinflate your expenses that are not actually needed. So I think that having a strategy between, of course, you don't want to not have any write-offs if they're actually necessary for the business, but having the discussion of where's that sweet spot between business expenses, write-offs, qualifying for whatever my goals are, and Mm -hmm. kind of sticking within those lanes when you can. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And not going overboard on just one strategy, just because, you know, and usually the, the tax savings, I feel like for a lot of people, they overestimate how much they can save in taxes by having a write-off where saving a significant amount of money in taxes requires a significant strategy, not just, I put Starbucks on my business card. <laughs> it's a little more complex than that to find the savings that you want to, which is where like speaking with, with you and your team is a much better approach than just, let me just write off everything and then not actually consider what is the whole picture of where I want to go right. and making sure that everything I'm doing now aligns with that. Well, and I think that some of the things that people, I'm going to say kind of sleep on are retirement contributions, especially as self-employed individuals, you know, when it comes to tax strategies, because and correct me if I'm wrong here, but when, like if you're doing a, you know, an individual 401k that gets added back in to your gross income when you're looking to qualify, I believe. Cause I know if I remember mm -hmm. correctly, it does with W2 income and that could be a way that you're avoiding income taxes completely legally, but you're also not, you know, buying, you're not buying a bunch of cameras or video equipment that you didn't actually need or upgrading it, but you're yeah. still having, you know, a tax savings that goes along with it. Yeah. I'd have to double check on the business contributions to retirement, but I do know on the personal side, you can. Right, right, right. Yeah. So I, yeah, if you're maxing out, like, let's say you have an I-401k and I think it's $20,500 this year. Um, if you're able to max that out on the personal side, the business, I don't think would be added back in. I would be interested Maybe we'll add that in the notes to this because I'd be interested to know yeah. what that looks like on your end. I would expect it to not count towards your income because it is a true business expense. The other thing for tax reduction strategies, and it doesn't necessarily make a difference, like you said, for qualifying, but if you're a single member LLC and you've elected to be taxed as an S-Corp, which I know a ton of our clients have been because there's a pretty substantial tax savings that comes with that, being taxed as an S-Corp is not helping you to qualify for, you know, in the home loan or the home mortgage process. However, it can be reducing your income taxes mm -hmm. dramatically, which can yeah. provide savings that you're looking for to fund that down payment, to fund that emergency fund and to have available cash on hand to, you know, actually live a life that you enjoy. Yeah. So it's still the same income that passes through, but you're paying potentially less taxes on that. Yeah, I think that's a much better strategy to begin with than just let me go write off every single expense possible <laughs> and actually spend money on that to try to save, uh, get savings right. on taxes. Right. It's like, uh, what is it? Jumping over dollars to pinch pennies or something. But yeah, yeah. it's not necessarily like the, the most sound financial strategy. I know we see it happen a lot because there is, there's that misconception that like, oh, I spent $100, I saved $100 on taxes. No, you spent $100, you probably saved between $12 and $22 on taxes. So yeah. you're still out 80-ish. Um, right. <laughs> was there anything else that you wanted to share when it comes to being self-employed and you know the strategy around buying a house and maintaining that W-2 if you can and kind of mm. everything that factors into that? I mean, I feel like we, we covered a lot in this, but is there anything that we're missing? Yeah. I feel like for most people, like it can feel very complicated and there are moments in which there is a complexity to it. However, for most people, um, it's kind of the same thing with student loans where people feel really overwhelmed. I don't know if I can buy a house, the student loans. And then we'll take a look and they get approved and they're like, wait, that's with my student loans. I'm like, yeah, they're not a problem. It's kind of the same thing with self-employed is like a lot of people are like, man, I don't know. And it's just confusing. There's a lot of moving pieces and then they get approved and it's, not a problem at all. Sometimes in our minds, we can overcomplicate things. And there are instances in which there's complexity and it requires some more paperwork and some more creative figuring out solutions. 
But for the majority of people, if you've been in business when you've had consistent income for a few years, odds are you're going to be able to get approved and it's going to be fine. And it's not going to be an issue that you run into. And so don't be afraid to talk with a loan officer, start that process and get things moving and then figure out what's the game plan that needs to happen afterwards. Instead of trying to figure it all out, have all the anxiety without even knowing if it's a problem to begin with. Absolutely. I could not agree more. Take some time, plan, get your information, then make a plan for how to move forward instead of getting so in our heads. And I think so many of us make the mistake of building things up when really we could just take like 20, 30 minutes to move forward and have significantly less anxiety around it. Yeah. Well, Kyle, that was jam-packed. Next week, we're going to have our final episode in this mini series, and we are going to be talking about the housing market at large, which actually is one of the topics I think that I'm most excited to chat about with you because it is changing a lot right now. And the timing (laughs) of this season, I think, could not have been better for us to be recording. So we will see you all next week and chat then. If you loved this episode, make sure to leave a five-star review for a chance to win a free financial strategy session with yours truly, Caitlin Magnuson. We do the drawing the first week of every month and to be eligible, you'll want to leave a five-star review and include your IG handle so we can contact the winner. I'll see you next time where we'll chat real finances for real people.